0: Well, good morning. morning. Really good to see you guys here and online. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the giant secret of joy. It's a phrase that G.K. Chesterton used about what is available to us in the gospel in terms of understanding that it's not just, it's not a matter of becoming religious. That's not what it means to embrace the gospel. What it's a matter of, it's a matter of us embracing the hope of who God is in the midst of our current circumstance and situations. Joy is not a pasted on smile, a painted on fake thing. It's something that goes deep. In fact, I can, I can have joy even with tears streaming down the, my, my face. Joy is my embrace and awareness that God is indeed with me. Joy is our embrace that God is with us. Uh, we're taking this journey called giant secret of joy th- through the book of Philippians. The theme of Philippians, there are a number of ancillary things, but overall, Paul talks about rejoicing. He's writing this letter from prison, which is his credibility point. He might not be in a physical prison. He's in chains, probably under house arrest, to this church that he started years before, about 800 miles away. And he's writing this letter to be delivered via parchment by a guy named Epaphroditus. And in the midst of circumstances that are anything less than ideal, he talks about rejoicing which is the power of the gospel. It's it's the relevance of the gospel. It's not a matter of saying, hey, everything's okay. You know what? Everything's not okay. Paul wouldn't have said it's okay that I'm in chains, but he says, you know what? God is using these chains. These chains will not get in the way of what I can experience and encounter because of the gospel, this good news that God has bridged the gap between you and me to him through Jesus Christ, restoring us in the original purpose that we're made for. In chapter one, Paul reveals that a, uh, there are a number of themes there, but a, a primary... Uh, way, key to joy is in embracing gospel priority. Prioritizing the gospel above all else, what does that look like? It looks like me revolving around Jesus and all my decisioning. I'm not expecting Jesus to revolve around me and all my preferences, but I revolve around him and his kingship regarding my journey. Chapter two lots of themes, but a dominant one was a key to joy is, is gospel community. Chapter one is more about revolving around Jesus. You could see if that's the case, then in chapter two, you could say that joy comes from reflecting Jesus. I can go deeper in my joy in terms of walking with him by reflecting him to you. And to you, and vice versa. Now chapter 3, where we are, we've been here a couple of weeks, there's several themes going on, but one thing that just pops out is a, the, the gospel intimacy that Paul is grateful for. We've, he mentions, even, he's already mentioned a couple of times last week as we looked at this notion of knowing Christ. So it's not just revolving around Christ and reflecting him, but it's, re- it's relating with him. And it's relating him in a, w- in a way where we are growing and where we are moving and where we're maturing. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Start in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'll give you one. Just let us know in the back. And uh, we'll hunt down a Bible for you if you don't own one. But if you didn't bring one with you and you do have one, you can read along with us on the screens. He says, not that I, verse 12, Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love this passage. It's powerful. Now, do you guys remember a few weeks ago, I felt like I made a, a, a fairly good biblical case for Moses being a golfer. Do you guys remember that? All right, so today I, 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 I might have a biblical case for Paul being a cyclist. We'll see. Now. Bicycles come in a variety of shapes and sizes, and sometimes you see a bike that just seems to fit somebody. Other times you see a bike that there might be just seem to be a little something off. But all bikes involve balance. Now some bikes are easier to find balance on than others. But you know, Right now I'm pretty balanced on this bike and it's because my, my, my feet and my legs that I feel like are very proportionate to this bike uh, are playing a role. Now it's easier for me, you know, as a result I don't really need to uh, uh, be moving or anything to find balance, but if I'm going to go somewhere I'm going to have to lift my feet up and then it could get quite interesting. <laughs> when you've got a, a larger bike trying to learn how... Uh, to ride it, all parents remember the day when it it hit for their kids. All three of my boys, I still remember. Seems like, it was a long time ago, seems like just yesterday when they learned to to ride a bike. And I remember my middle son, Joel, in particular. We got rid of the training wheels thing. He knew about the balance issue, but he said, Dad, before I go... Fast, I, I, just need to, before I, I, I just need to learn to balance. I don't want to fall over. And he wanted t- to figure out how to not fall over before he started pedaling. I said, buddy, that's not going to happen. He said, but I'd like it to. Well, it's not going to happen. In fact, Albert Einstein speaks into this. You guys feeling smart today? You know, How about an Albert Einstein quote? This is one of the quotes of his that I can actually, I think, understand. He says, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. So the only way that this bike is going to stay upright, if I want it to stay upright, is not by walking away from it. The way for it to stay upright is for me to ride it. Because as soon as it stops, it's fallen over. By the way, I did ask the person who owns this bike for permission to let it fall. So relax. In this passage, Paul says we need to keep growing forward. We need to keep moving. And the minute that we stop moving... we stop growing. When we stop growing, we stop tasting the gospel. We stop being used by God for the cause of the gospel. We stop experiencing the gospel. And so in this passage, he walks us through how to keep the momentum going. In each of our walks individually, yes, but in our walk is a community. Remember he's writing to to the Philippians as a church. This is an exciting time in the life and the story of Northland Church. And there is no more important time than now for us to together embrace what's it going to take for us to grow forward together, building on a rich, beautiful foundation of three-plus decades. Where do we go from here? We ride into the future together. And Paul's going to Help us do that. And the way he helps us do it is he points out several momentum stoppers. I'm going to call them paralyzing perspectives. Things that freezes. You know, you're moving along, you're growing in your walk with Christ, growing and understanding that we're growing as a church, moving along, and then all of a sudden we stop. What causes that? Now, you and I would know from a bike what causes it as we stopped moving. But what stops us from moving? What stops us as we're growing? Here are four paralyzing perspectives that will stop movement in us as individuals, as we're maturing, as we're growing, and also in us as a church. Let's go back through this passage. Number one. Paralyzing perspective, number one, what will stop our momentum, what will stop us from growing forward is thinking too highly of our present maturity level. Thinking too highly of our present maturity level. Go back to the the passage. First part of verse 12 and also the first part of verse 13. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. And then first part of verse 13, he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Wait a minute. This is the apostle Paul. This is a guy that has planted churches all over Asia, minor, has been used by God significantly. I would think he's got a pretty good walk with, with Christ going on, don't you think? And he says, I haven't arrived. And he just re- he's revealing to you and me, he says, I don't have too high of a view of my present maturity level. And so often we're riding along and saying, you know what? I think, I think I've covered some ground here and we stop. And if we think too highly of our present maturity level, we stop growing forward. And really the further we've gone in the journey, the more dangerous it is to fall, to succumb to this. The, 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 the more powerful a church's ministry, the bigger the opportunity, and the more likely it is that we'll think too highly of our present maturity level. I was flying one time with a friend of mine who's a private pilot. We're up over the Panhandle of, of Florida, and I'm over in the right-hand side of the seat. You know, the co-pilot seat. You feel all important there because you know, the pedals are moving. You're not doing anything, but the pedals are moving. The stick's going, and we're walking. Uh, we're flying along and. Just out of the blue, I've got my headsets on. He, he talks to me. He says, hey, Matt. His name is Tommy. He said, hey, Matt. You know what? It just was, this was so random. Uh, I'm enjoying the view. Everything's going great. And he says, hey, Matt. You know what the worst thing that can happen to a pilot is? I said, mm- no, and, I'm, and I hope whatever it is has not just happened. I mean, can you imagine being on a Delta flight and the pilot comes on? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you know what the worst thing that can happen to a pilot is? You'll never believe it. Uh, I said, no, Tommy, uh, what? He said, complacency. It's Just one word. I said, complacency? He said, yeah. And I don't know what caused him to think that. And of course, I'm thinking, I hope he hasn't been complacent because that's a bad thing. And I asked him about it later as well. He talked it about a little in the flight there. He says, yeah. He says, that's, that's the cause of so many accidents when pilots get complacent. Uh, in fact, the more experienced a pilot is, the more of a chance for them to become complacent. Because they've done it so many times. They, they're in the routine. They, they do this. You stop doing the checklist. You stop checking things three times instead of just twice or instead of twice, once. Or instead of once none, taking some things for granted. Paul says, guys, I want you to know something. For the joy to to remain high in my life, for me to remain effective, for me to remain as somebody who's growing forward, I'm not growing complacent, I'm guarding against that. I'm not thinking too highly of my present maturity level. Romans chapter 12. Verse 3, Paul says this, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So notice he's not saying think of yourself as dirt. He's just saying be accurate, be honest, let there be a humility about you. Rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Where are you in your walk? You've trusted Christ. You've been growing. Maybe it's been a few years. The longer it's been, maybe the, the more likely it is for us to fall prey to this first paralyzing perspective. Here's the second one. For us as a church, making sure we're not just avoiding thinking too highly of our present maturity level, but let's also be careful about thinking too lowly of our present purpose. Paul says, you know what, I, I'm guarding all the time from thinking too lowly of my present purpose. I, you know, that spiritual gift of clarifying the obvious that I've got, here's the deal. Bikes for, serve a lot of purposes, but my, I think, the number one purpose of a bike is to go from point A to point B. And Paul says, I have not forgotten point B. I have not forgotten where I'm headed. I I'm not, have not forgotten what I'm, what I'm for. Let's go back to the text. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Now look at the second part of verse 12. He says, But I sit back, take it easy. Because you know what? No, no, no. What does he say? He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's a great image. He said, every day when I wake up, I wake up gripped about the purpose for which I've been taken hold of and I want to take hold of that for which I've been taken hold of. What have you been taken hold of for? If you're in Christ, if I have trusted Christ, he took hold of me for a very distinct purpose. And you know what? He took hold of all of us for a common purpose. He's renewing the cosmos. And when you and I entered into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, it wasn't just about us getting our religious lives together to help me out in my, with my family or with my work and maybe get assurance for heaven. Does all of that happen? Well, of course, but it is far bigger. He has taken hold of each human being because those human beings are renewed. Images of God that he is renewing in order to renew all of creation back to life. And Paul says, I am not forgetting why he's taken hold of me. Why did he take hold of Northland Church years ago, and why has he taken hold of Northland for this next season? A couple of weeks ago, I was packing up my office, my Colorado office. I'm in a uh, office building with a law firm, actually, where my library is, and. Um, there's this seminar room right next to my conference room. It's in a separate, separate room, and I was walking through there as I was packing, and uh, this law firm is uh, a legacy estate planning law firm. They, they help people plan their estates, and, uh, and the theme is leaving a legacy, and they do a lot of that, and they'll do these seminars Uh, several evenings a week as people come in and they kind of give them an overall presentation of, all right, think through your life. What's the big picture going on in your life? And a a couple of weeks ago, I noticed that there were three large chalkboards leaning against the wall. And I I've noticed them right away, because you don't see chalkboards a whole lot anymore. And I, I know the, the principal of this firm, and I, and I thought, this, this is very cool, she is, she's pulled off another one. And she, she had these chalkboards made, and at the top was a caption printed already, before I die, I want to. And then staring at those, boy, I just stopped for a while and then obviously I took a photo of them. I started reading the individual phrases and over the course of a number of evenings, evidently she had given the participants the piece of chalk and you go up and you put something down. Before I die, I want to. And there were some pretty profound things there. I mean, one was find Bigfoot. Another one was Kill Zombies. I thought, wow, this, was this a middle school uh, thing? No. Uh, there were some other ones that were, they were on the same level, kind of in terms of profundities. It's See Dan grow hair. Okay, boy, there's a life purpose for you. Uh, before I die, I want to eat the world's largest burger. Hmm. Before I die, I want to go to the haunted brew fest. <laughs> Oh, setting goals pretty high, are you? Before I die, I want to get my fifth hole in one. I got a problem with that, but I'm not sure I believe that one right there, but that they've really gotten four holes in one already. Uh, Before I die, I want to hug a unicorn, Great. I actually think that's more likely than getting a fifth hole in one, but that's a different story. Before I die, remember this is in Colorado. Before I die, I want to get high. Before I die I want to hug a cobra. I think that's actually related to the previous one of getting high. I'm not sure. Before I die I want to eat a whole pack I want to eat a whole pack of Listerine strips or eat Shakey's pizza again or meet Kanye West. Really? That's what you want to do before you die. Then it, uh, but there were also mixed in with those, some that took a little bit more thought. And they were getting the purpose of the exercise. Before I die, I want to learn to let go. Before I die, I want to love others as much as I love myself. Before I die, I want to live every moment. Before I die, I want to inspire others. Before I die, I want to love again. Before I die, I want to help people who can change the world. Before I die, I want to find truth. Before I die, I want to wake others up. Before I die, I want to not be on an island of one. Before I die, I want to bring part of heaven down here. Before I die, I want to see hate in. Before I die, I want to experience God's peace once more. Hmm. What happened in their life? Before I die, I want to be a leader for Christ and bring people to know Him. That was on there. I think it was on the same one about, want to eat a whole pack of Listerine strips. I'm thinking, all right. Hmm. If I had a chalkboard up here and gave you a piece of chalk, what would you put? That whole calling, you see, Paul views all of life in terms of calling. You see this over and over in his epistles. In fact, the word for church, the Greek word for church that's most often translated in the English church is ekklesia. It comes from the root word kaleo or kalein, which is call, to call. What church is, is not a religious assembly alone, it's not a building for sure. It's a community of men and women who have been called, called out of darkness into light, called out of l- death into life. Church is not about staring at the back of somebody's head for an hour and a half when it's convenient and when the Super Bowl is delayed a little bit until late evening. Church is about us, together, taking hold of that for which we have been taken hold of, and it's a powerful thing, absolutely. And it's a po- You show me a group of people. Show me a community. It can be a smaller group or a larger group. Men and women who are not just kind of going through the motions but are saying, let's together take hold of that for which we've been taken hold of. Let's not think too lowly of our present purpose right now. Peter encourages us. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10, he says, but you're a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who did what? Called you. Out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There is a significance about who you are as a people, Peter is saying, and it's a people that have a purpose, a people that have a calling. So I've got an exhortation, I've got a request, I've got an encouragement all wrapped into one. You guys ready? Here it is. I'd like to ask you to pray for this next three months in Northland Church's journey. Because as leaders, we're going to go through a visioning process, a dreaming process. What is the vision that God has for Northland? Building on the foundation of these 30 plus years, what's He taking hold of us for now? Uh, I'd encourage you to do that individually as well. Because if you don't, if I don't, that's what happens. But if we do, huh. a friend of mine, Kenan Birch, puts it this way. What's the promise God made to the world when he created you? What promise did God make to the world when he created you and you? And when we come to Christ and we're restored in the original purpose for which we're made... What promise is God making the world through this community of His followers called Northland? To this, this immediate community but around the world as we walk in concert, as we serve, as we take hold of that for which He's taken hold of us and He's doing that for other believers and other communities when He calls us, He calls, to, calls us to, to image Him together. Can I ask you to pray for us? Some of you be invited to participate. And if you feel free to touch base with us, it's key. What, basically, it's us just renewing our understanding. What's He taking hold of us for? A French aviator and writer, back in the early part of last century, Antoine Dumas Exupery, wrote this. He said, if you're going to get a group of people together to start dreaming, if you want them to build a boat, this is what you do. You don't right off the bat try to get everybody together and get some wood and get the plans together. It's wood and plans necessary, of course it is, but here's the bottom line. If you want to build a ship, don't just, don't at first drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Then we'll figure out the wood and the plans after that. What is the endless immensity? of the sea before Northland Church. Do you realize what an opportunity you have, that I have, to be involved as we catch new wind in our sails and long for the immensity of the sea before us of his kingdom purposes. Paul says, don't think too lowly of your present purpose. Because if you do, it stops you in your tracks. Here's the third paralyzing perspective that happens in us personally, individually, but it also happens in us as a church. In fact, this is the one that probably happens to me more than any. Thinking too much about my past track record. Thinking too much about our past track record. That'll slow us down. We're going along and what will stop us in our tracks, what will stop this movement and then cause things to just be down for a while is thinking too highly of our present purpose or thinking too lowly of our present purpose and yes, thinking too highly of our present maturity level. But a big one is when we start thinking too much about our past track record. I got a PhD in this. Let me share with you what some of my research has has discovered. It's when I make my rearview mirror just as big as the windshield. Something Your windshield breaks, you're going to take it into the uh, repairs in the body shop and get them to replace your rearview mirror. What would happen if they went back into the room, the supply room back there, and they brought out a rearview mirror that was the same size as the windshield? And they start kind of maneuvering it to get it into the, through the side. And you say, well, what are you going to say? No, 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 no. What are you doing? And he says, well, you know, what if you were to say, you know what? You need to know what's happened behind you. What are you going to say? Of course we're going to say. Of course we do. But what's more important is that I see what's happening through the windshield. Go back to the text. Verse 13. Second half of it, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now, what I love there, is he says, is one thing I do. And then he says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Isn't that two things? No, it's one. Because the only way I can actually forget what's behind is to strain for what is ahead. And the only way I can truly strain for what is ahead is to forget what's behind. It doesn't mean that I get amnesia. It simply means that I no longer let the past dictate what's happening in the future. I, I, I move on from that. Prime Minister David Lloyd George, he was the Prime Minister of England the latter part of World War I, a phenomenal leader that was instrumental in helping England critically during that time, he was Prime Minister in the days after. He was being interviewed one time by a journalist, and it was one of those uh, deals where the journalists kind of w- spent a day with him, and they were out for a walk after lunch, and walking through his estate, and they were walking through some fields where some cattle were. and. Uh, They had their wellies on, you know, their boots and walking through, went through a gate and the the journalist out of courtesy let the prime minister go before him and the the journalist was so engrossed in his interview and the question, he followed him and and they went a few steps and the prime minister turned around and noticed that the journalist had left the gate open. And so he turned around and went and shut the gate because he noticed some cattle were coming up near the gate. They were coming up to the gate and they were going to go out. The prime minister said, you know, that reminds me, a good friend of mine died a couple of years ago and he gathered his his whole extended family together around his deathbed and exhorted them to close the gates behind them as they went through life so often we don't paul says close the gates forget that which lies behind do you think he's referring to really good things or bad things It's not a trick preacher question, come on. Both. Both of those can put us in this spot. In fact, the more accomplishments that you have as, a, as an individual, as a follower of Christ, the more dangerous this is to look back on past accomplishments, and the same is true for church. Has Northland had amazing impact in the kingdom? Absolutely. You know what that does? That sets us up more for looking so much to the past that we forget to strain for what lies ahead. Is that you tracking? Paul is saying, be very careful here. You don't get on a bicycle backwards. You guys want to see me ride it backwards? It's not going to happen. But it's also the difficult stuff as well. So take a look in your rearview mirror just for a moment. Take a glance. What is it back there that's wooing you, that's luring you, that's paralyzing you? Take a look at some possibilities. Is it past sin? What that past sin will do is... Paralyzes us with shame and guilt, or past accomplishments. Paralyzes us with pride. Past decisions paralyzes with regret, betrayal. Some of you are still in the midst, maybe of the ache of that, and we get paralyzed by bitterness. Past circumstances will paralyze us with idealism. You know, you look back, and the further you get away from the past, the better it looks. You know that whole deal. Children of Israel, I was reading in Numbers 11 where they uh, I've been rescued from slavery, but now things are difficult in the desert, and they start idealizing the past. Past failures can paralyze us with despair or resignation. Past disappointments with heartbreak. The list goes on and on, but the common result is this, and some of you are right here right now. Charles Dickens wrote a classic called Great Expectations. So ironic and powerful of a title because of a number of things in the book. But one of them is a character, a woman named Miss Havisham. She was an old woman. She never left her home. She wore the same clothes every day in a tattered yellowed wedding dress. All the clocks in the house were stopped at the same time, 20 minutes to nine. And the reason was that on her wedding day, decades before, Miss Havisham received a telegram delivered at 20 minutes to nine from her groom-to-be saying he was not going to be her groom and her life stopped. Momentum, momentum, momentum. I don't know what it is that's got you here, but I do know where to take you.